This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association, and welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Ever get into a conversation about Christianity? Sure you do, and when it comes to a point where you need to distinguish between theologies, don't you normally say the Catholics this and the Protestants that? Well, certainly there are a number of other divisions that don't fall neatly within those two categories, and a very important voice has, for a long time in this country, been left out of the mix, the Orthodox Church. The Eastern Orthodox have a very interesting history. They're either a thousand years old or two thousand, depending on how you look at it. And yet, they're only just beginning to make a distinctive mark on the American landscape. Well, let me amend that statement. Of course, they've been around and contributed to the religion of this country ever since the Greeks, Russians, Armenians, and Eastern Europeans have been here. But it's only now that we've seen an influx of blue-eyed blondes from a wide range of ethnic traditions. And it seems in very little time, we won't need those national names in front of the church titles anymore. Well, ever wonder what happens inside those beautiful edifices? We'll find out today on Common Threads with my guests, Father Nicholas Borsgol uh, from St. Nicholas Church here in Grand Rapids, and Father Jim Bogdan from Holy Trinity Orthodox Church. Uh, Father Nicholas is from an Antiochian uh, church, and Father Jim is from a Greek Orthodox Church. Uh, Father Nick, give uh, a Reader's Digest version, if you would, of the Orthodox Church's history from um, from the beginnings of the before the schism, if you will, in the in the eleventh century. Uh, how, how did things come about that the Eastern Church separated from Rome? Let's correct that. Let's begin by making a correction. Sure, we did not separate from Rome. Did they separate from you? From our perspective, okay. Rome separated. Understand. So maybe we should just say the church. The church split. split. Thank okay. you. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we, we believe that uh, uh, on the day of Pentecost, uh, the church, we, co- we call that, that day, it's the birthday of the church, when the Holy Spirit descended on the apostles, and the apostles from there spread all over the world and preaching the gospel. Uh of course, we have a common uh, history with the Western. When I say Western, I, say, I include Catholic and, and, and later on Protestant uh, church. We have a common history, thousand years of common history. Uh, from the beginning, the church developed in, in, in the local churches. Let's say the Church of Jerusalem. It was the church in the city of Jerusalem with its uh, bishop, presbyters, deacons, and the faithful around them, according to, to the teaching of St. Ignatius of Antioch, they were a universal church. They were Catholic church, even they were local church. Uh, of course, the area, uh, St. Paul and, and St. Peter, all the apostles preach all over, uh, the, the, uh, all over the Roman Empire and uh, they converted Jewish to Christianity and converted 
pagans, which we call them uh, Gentiles to Christianity, and the, both groups became one church later on. Of course, they had some problems. Uh, the church faced uh, a few wrong teachings. We call them heresies. That was the church uh, under Constantine, the, the uh, Emperor Constantine the Great, uh, 312, uh, start calling for uh, ecumenical councils. The first one was 325, year 325, and then second, third, seven ecumenical councils defined the teaching of the church and the practice, the tradition of the church, because for 325 years we did not have a written tradition, which uh, we call it uh, Bible, but we had an oral tradition and that oral tradition passed on from generation to generation. I don't know if I answered your question. You answered my <coughs> question up to that point. Up to uh, the year 11, uh, 1054. Oh, before we get okay. that far, let All me right. ask you this. Would you agree that around the 4th century that Alexandria became in competition with Rome as far as where the, the, the capital of the church, if you will, was, was going to be? You're so Alexandria or Constantinople? I'm sorry, Constantinople. Constantinople of yes. course. Okay, yes. it's very important. Uh, when uh, the seat of the empire moved from Rome to Constantinople, uh, Constantinople became a very important uh, uh, center of Christianity. Uh, and uh, the first uh, ecumenical council gave an authority to the patriarch of Constantinople, to the mm. bishop of Constantinople, to be equal to the bishop of Rome, which we know by the pope. Mm -hmm. So uh, because the, sh the center of the civil authorities shifted from Rome to Constantinople, so Constantinople became more important, and therefore the bishop of Constantinople became important and almost equal in... in uh, to the rest of the patriarchs. We, historically, we have the five centers of, of, of uh, Christianity, Jerusalem, Antioch, Constantinople, Rome, and Alexandria. Uh, that what later on created a problem who can claim. But I, th I think theologically, though, we should keep in mind that the, in the early church, the theological leadership was in Constantinople. I mean, look where the ecumenical councils were held. Mm -hmm. Look where the bishops all gathered to deal with the various heresies from Arius uh, to any number, the, the Monophysites, whatever they were. Mm -hmm. they, they, these councils were held in the East, Constantinople, Nicaea, and that part of what we call Asia Minor. So there was a theological leadership. The creed, for example, comes out of the East, out of, the, out of these councils, out of the first the decision as to what will constitute the Bible, the, 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 the New Testament, that we have 27 books of that constitute the New Testament, that does not come into existence until the 4th century. And, and it, it was, came into existence yes, in... Yes. In other words, it was uh, the can, what we call the canon of the New Testament was produced by the church. So there was a very active, vibrant church in existence before there ever was a Bible, as we know it. There were some, wasn't that right, Father, about a hundred different texts of what we call the New Testament floating around. So the church in existence, which we call the Orthodox Church, or the church at that time, 
sat down in council and decided which are going to be the books of the in New Nicaea? Testament. In Nicaea. In Nicaea. But also, uh, at this point, the, there was no distinction between Catholic and, and Orthodox. There of was course. one church. One church with a lot of uh, heresies. I mean, that I mean had there, were, there were heretical movements yes, as well. within the church that had yes. to be dealt with. And so, therefore, bishops came from the West as well as from the East and, and convened to deal with these issues. There was a, there was a, a debate about the two natures of Jesus at that time. Correct. Later on, oh, later the on. Fourth Ecumenical Council, which was held uh, 451, Chalcedon. Yeah, yeah. we call it the uh, uh, Council of Chalcedon. Yeah. Or, so it was that the debate that came: Is Jesus fully divine, or is fully human? Of course, the definition of the Fourth Ecumenical Council said he is fully human and fully divine in one person. So he has two natures. But one person. This is was very important to to mm-hmm. because it created a problem later on between what we call them now the uh, uh, old Eastern Orthodox churches like the Syriac Church, the Armenian Church, yeah. the Ethiopian Church, and the, the Monophysite churches, Monophysite, the Coptic, and the, and the Coptic yeah. in Egypt. What what problem was that? It was over the two natures of Christ. We, uh, the, the church, uh, the, the council of the first ecu- ecumenical council, which was held in Chalcedon in uh, mm. in Asia Minor, mm. uh, said that Jesus, Jesus had two natures, divine and human nature, in one person. Uh, some disagreed over that definition. They they emphasize on the divinity of Christ and they said mm-hmm. the divine nature somehow covered the human nature mm-hmm. of course after so many years the last 20 years we we agreed that we have the same faith and the, the same mm-hmm. the, the same definition we we used greek language they used syriac and we misunderstood each other they Thought we were talking. And that's about coming to a resolution. Yeah, now, we, we were fine, in communion yeah. with them yeah. today. I see. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, now these Eastern churches seem to have a life of their own up until the, the 11th century. That is to say, uh, some people were doing something in one country. Some people were doing something in another. Uh, uh, they they had a common. They had certain common beliefs. Mm-hmm. But was there any sort of federation at that time up until? around the 11th century. What do you mean by federation? I mean... Unity. Yes, a unity. Thank you. The unity would come under the unity of the of the total church to the patriarchates, in particular the ecumenical patriarchate, which is in Constantinople. So that then becomes, there's a theological unity. I- individual churches that spring up in Russia, which come what, later, in Bulgaria or what have you, they may have a particular cultural identity which brings certain nuances into the church, but the basic theology, the basic liturgical services, for example, we all celebrate the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom or uh, St. Yaakovus or St. Basil, that's all the same. But the di- distinctions may come, and perhaps Father Nicholas does certain things that I don't do you know, in a different way, or I do something which you, differently. Which still exists today. Yeah. Right, and, right. And, and but when, when our churches came to this country 200 years ago, 
So we still have jurisdictional differences, yeah. but we have the same faith. We have, we're in communion with well, each other. What, and I'm saying, let's say 800, 900, mm. was this still pretty much the same? Exactly. Because at that time period, missionaries were going out uh, from where? From either Constantinople or from Antioch or from Alexandria. And as they were con- bringing people to Christianity, then that was co- a common Christianity, the Byzantine Christianity, which they were bringing. And again, you've got, as I said, the teachings of the ecumenical councils and the writings of the church fathers by that time, the great 4th century fathers, the writings of the apostolic age, all this is part of that tradition that Father Nicholas referred to, uh, written and non-written, and all that then be- will spread with, uh, w- with the missionaries. For example, uh, Cyril and Methodius, when they go into, the, into what we call the Balkan countries, here are two brothers coming out of um, uh, Thessalonica, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, they, so they're probably one of the most Byzantine uh, uh, cities in the whole world, and the empire is going to be Thessalonica. Uh, it's a magnificent, uh, magnificent place in terms of Byzantine culture existing today along with very contemporary culture and, and mm-hmm. arts or uh, uh, architecture. Well, that is what they took into the Slavic countries, okay, into the Balkan countries, excuse me, and depending on how you define Bulgaria. Right. Okay, so what we know is Serbia and, and those areas of the world uh, are, are traditional historic uh, Byzantine countries, and their theology then will be the theology and their practices and customs will be the practices coming out of Constantinople. And the same as the missionaries go south or go further east, they'll be coming out of Antioch or out of Jerusalem. How did the Muslim conquests of, of uh, say, 11th, 12th century, how did that uh, help or disable the, the way the religion was was defined back then? I mean, it, it obviously had to have an effect. Uh, what was that effect? Any idea? When, when the Muslims... Uh, conquered uh, what we call it today the Fertile Crescent mm-hmm. which yeah. is uh, Egypt, uh, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, Palestine, that mm-hmm. area, uh, year 720. Uh, it, it did not have that big impact on, on, on the faith of the people at that time because the uh, even even later, when when the first dynasty, the Umayyad dynasty, established their their capital in Damascus, they said, "If you want to mm-hmm. keep your faith, that's fine. You can practice it the way." They yeah. they weren't uh, zealous. They weren't uh, anti-Christian at that time. Even one of our yeah. greatest saint, Saint John of uh, Damascus, he was their uh, financial ministry. So. Uh, Christians in the in, in the Middle East, uh, especially in the early years of, of uh, 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 Islam, it wasn't problem. Uh, the problem came later on, and especially with the with the Ottoman Empire, with the Turk later on. They were talking about the, the 16th, 17th, 18th century, 19th centuries. But even uh, with, even with the Ottomans, it was mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. a respectful approach and attitude towards the Orthodox churches that they found in the various countries. I think the real change, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Father, mm-hmm. comes in the 20th century when you get the Young Turk movement of Kemal Ataturk, mm-hmm. and you get the fanaticism among the Islamic people. Then you begin getting all sorts of 
you know, problems in terms of not not converting, but rather population exchanges, massacres, uh, genocides, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. For example, the the uh, genocide. The obliteration of the Armenian people in mm-hmm. 1915, what, mm-hmm. some million people wiped out. Mm-hmm. And followed by, approximately three years later, in Trapezan, the next area over, uh, the extermination of another million Greek people who had been there for over uh, three, 4,000, wow, well, 3,000 years in that part of the world. And again, it was the fanatic young Turks who now make it a religious issue, which is that same kind of, of fanaticism that is occurring in many parts especially under the Turkish uh, part of the world, and in some parts of the Middle East, anti-Christian. But uh, I, I, I may be wrong, but I think that's more of a 20th century phenomenon because it was kind of a mutual respect uh, between the peoples up to that time. The, 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 the members of the Islamic faith respected the Christian churches that were there. Some, some of the scholars, they believe that the, the Christian uh, population was the majority in the Middle East till the 13th century. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about Islam came yeah. 8th century, beginning of uh, mm-hmm. early uh, 8th right. century, so 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, even till the 13th century, mm-hmm. the population, uh, the Christian population was the majority uh, in, the, in the Middle East. Is, is there any evidence of dialogue, of perhaps collaboration between the scholars? I mean, I know that that's pretty... Uh, yeah, it, it's pretty remote. Uh, it's not. It's not as remote as yeah. we may think. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is an ongoing di- an ongoing dialogue. No, no that is was. That I know right was. now. Was no. Yes. I don't. I, I, yes. Yes. Uh, in the in the Middle East, uh, actually, the the caliphs, uh, mm-hmm. either in in Damascus or in in Baghdad later on with the Abbas, Abbasi uh, dynasty, they used to invite you know priests, monks, and and and. Uh, um, Muslims, clerks, uh, clergy, to to imams, to come and and debate. And we have we have some manuscripts, you know, still hand uh, written uh, manuscripts about that dialogues between the two uh, mm-hmm. uh, people. Even uh, if you go to the literature, the Arabic literature, I, I, I uh, uh, one one of the famous uh, uh, poets. Uh, came to my hometown and he was talking about that kind of debate mm-hmm. between Muslims and Christians and he d- he said I don't know who's right in in his uh, yeah. poetry yeah but there was a respect there which is interesting but uh, probably I should indicate sometimes you know it's let's say uh, based on 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 the who is ruling at that time you know mm-hmm. we face some zealous rulers who were anti-christian but it wasn't the pattern for all the time, let's say uh, tolerance for hundred years, and then somebody intolerance will, for intolerance years. for ten, twenty, <laughs> right. thirty years. If, if then I, somebody else will come. So it, it, it varies from year to year. If I could take a different position from here now, uh, the antagonism or the problems come in not as much with the with the Muslim uh, people, right? But when you get into the nineteenth century, when many churches and the Protestant churches in the West began sending missionaries to the Middle East, sending missionaries to the Orthodox communities, trying to convert these people to Protestantism, and which is kind of a, doesn't make sense because here you're talking about a church which, whose roots are from Pentecost, as Father said, and here comes a group coming into existence after the 16th century, and now they're trying to convert people who've been 
for 1,500 years. And I think there was greater antagonism between that kind of thing happening than between the Orthodox and the, and the Muslims. It was kind of a mutual respect. My mother's from uh, my mother's family from that part of the world, from Trebizond, just next to Armenia. And she remembers as a little girl, she was nine when they left, that on the important feast days, especially the feast day of St. George, when the important officials in the in the in the Ottoman in the Ottoman Turkish government would come by and pay their respects, or if they'd walk by an Orthodox church, they'd bow as a little reverence to St. George or whoever, especially St. George, because he's very dear to the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And then they would go on. And because there is that, that tradition that, the, that they cannot eliminate from their background. Right, right. So when the Crusades were going on, where was the Orthodox Church at that point, philosophically and Well, where did the Crusades physically? begin? The Crusades began, the first Crusade is what? When the Byzantine Emperor asked the papacy, Urban II, for help because they were losing their lands to, to, the, to, the, to, Saracens. The, to the Saracens, and they asked for help. And so, therefore, the First Crusade was organized to help Byzantium restore its territories, okay, in, um, uh, in, in 1096. So what happens? The First Crusade started out very noble, nobly, but once they hit Edessa, from Edessa on down throughout the whole, that part of the Middle East, these various crusading knights who came from France and Germany, they began taking these cities and creating little principalities for themselves. And so this idea of removing the, the Saracens, quote-unquote, from the Middle East to return it back to Byzantium never got any place, but these uh, knights who were coming, these nobles from the West, hacked out little empires and principalities for themselves, so from Edessa to, uh, to um, uh, Antioch, um, all the way to Damascus, to, and then they, they took Jerusalem. All right, now what, what are fu- future crusades? Future crusades are organized for the next couple hundred years in which the West now, uh, or rather, whether the, uh, first, the, ter- first the, the Muslims want to take back their territories, then another crusade will be organized to drive them back out again. And so you've got a very definite now Western influence. For example, the island of Rhodes has some magnificent, Rhodes and Enzakynthos, two interesting islands, have some magnificent uh, uh, crusader palaces, castles, uh, in, in various parts of the country, and mm-hmm. fortifications. Well, these were the, these were the R&R, Russian recreation places, for the crusaders on their way to the Middle East. So the crusaders, if anything, especially in the Fourth Crusade, well, when the Crusaders came, they conquered Constantinople. There wasn't one Saracen killed in the Fourth Crusade, just brother Christians. So the whole crusading movement is perverted to becoming a great big land grab. And now, religion no longer no, has anything to do with No, not at all, it. not at all. Religion may have become the original uh, pretext for, uh, for, for, for starting this movement, but it became a very important grab for power and a grab for, for land by these various crusading armies and the nobles who were leading them. We'll build a kingdom, we'll build a fiefdom. Now, how do you impose a Western uh, medieval system of, of you know, serfs and what have you and nobles uh, that kind of a system in the Middle East when it's completely foreign to these people. But you go through that area, you look at the architecture, and you look at some of the churches, even some of the churches that the Orthodox are churches that were built by the Crusaders. On the island of Rhodes in particular, the church at the entrance, entrance of the harbor, the uh, Church of the Annunciation, was a Crusader church, which is now a Greek Orthodox church. 
which meant it was a Roman Catholic Western Church. And, and in many of the islands, which you also see not only the architecture of the churches are not Byzantine in architecture, but very Western, but you also see the iconography is Western as opposed to Byzantine, almost uh, a Renaissance, that, that humanistic Renaissance aspect of, 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 the, of the iconography in the churches. So what the Crusades did established a, a very almost a permanent antagonism between the Orthodox world and the non-Orthodox world because of their purposes in coming on the Crusades. These churches that you were talking about that are Western in architecture and all that, do some of them remain Roman Catholic or did they all change to that Orthodox? I, I don't, I can't give a statistic, but the bulk of them have, have become Orthodox. As the, as the Crusaders left and the Orthodox Church in the area uh, retook the church, took the property and, and turned it back into an Orthodox Church. But the, but the influence of the Crusaders on the Orthodox Church was a neg- negative one. A negative one, very much so. And, and we suffered as a, as yeah. a Look, Arab what, uh, Christian. Yeah, very much because, so. Because we became between the hard place, between the rock and the hard place, because yeah. the, the Muslims say, said to us, you're Christian, you should go to, with the Crusader. And when we went to the Crusaders, they said, no, you're, you're in, uh, yeah. a native Arab, you should go with your brothers, the Muslims. And we were nowhere, so we suffered... Uh, uh, That's right. Great deal uh, because of that. Look at the relics in Western Europe, the Christian relics. Where do they come from? The Fourth Crusade, principally. They literally cleaned out Constantinople, desecrated the churches, and took all the various items back to 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 Europe. Saint Mark's, for example, the uh, I believe it is at the Lions and Saint Mark's in Venice. They they came the. Yeah, the, the no line, kidding. They came from Constantinople. Yeah. That's just an example, but there are many, many more. Hmm. You've been able to rectify this. I mean, over the years, you you're not asking for the lions back. I, I'm assuming. <laughs> well, it's not mine to ask. However, I mean, you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. I mean, the, you know, we're coming down to the wire. We we just have a couple of minutes left. Okay. And I want to get into uh, the ecumenical movements, the discussions that are taking place between the Vatican and the patriarchs and and all of that. Uh, But in a minute, could you tell me, you you do not look at the Pope, obviously, as the head of your church, but isn't it true that he has the title you've given him, uh, what is it called? The the primacy of honor. Is is that a a term you If you have them all at dinner... Who sits to the right of the uh, of the podium? The, pa- the Pope would be given a position of honor, but not a position of authority. All the churches say that all the patriarchs are equal in the Orthodox Church. That's why our ecumenical patriarch, all the bishops, yeah. But in that sense, all the chur- the five churches mm-hmm. are equal mm-hmm. in their relationship to each other. And therefore, his status dis- as bis- bishop of Rome is what gets him there. Yes. But in terms of decision-making, the church as a whole makes the decision. For, take, for example, one of the big issues is the filioque, the addition that was put into the, uh, into the creed. And I think in the 6th or 7th, I, think, I forget, 6th century, whatever. Okay, Our, the Orthodox world says one person can't make that change. An ecumenical council would make right. that change. We don't accept that authority of an individual to do that. So if the West and the East uh, reunited, we can recognize him and accept him as the Greek word protos, is first among equal. And this is how we uh, actually treat our patriarchs. Yeah. 
Okay, excuse me, gentlemen, we've, we've got to end this show, but uh, both of you will be back next week and we can continue this discussion. I want to thank Father Nicholas Borsgal and uh, Father Jim Bogdan, uh, both uh, representatives of the Orthodox Church here in Grand Rapids. My name is Fred Stella, and I thank you so much for joining us here on Common Threads. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association, 458-0307. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. The participants on this program represent themselves and are not designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. To purchase a cassette copy of this program, call us at 771-6714. Send questions or comments Write us in care of Common Threads, WGVU Radio, 301 West Fulton, Grand Rapids, Michigan, 49504, or by email at stelthom at juno.com. Thank you for listening, and join us next week. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Hi, I'm Fred Stella, and welcome to Common Threads. You know, of all I've read and observed about the Eastern Orthodox Church, I think that one exchange seems to sum up what makes them uh, unique in Christendom. A young man was complaining about the order of the Mass and how he thought certain things could be altered or modified and made more modern. And an older gentleman stopped in mid-sentence with the reply, This is what we do. As if the young man was proposing doing away with gravity or eliminating Venus from our solar system. The Orthodox Mass and the traditions that they embrace indeed have remained unchanged for the most part for over a thousand years. Today we will find out more about the ever more popular aspect of Christianity with uh, Father Nicholas, uh, who is from uh, St. Nicholas Church, and uh, Father Jim, who is from Holy Trinity Greek Orthodox Church. And uh, last, uh, our last broadcast last week, we were talking about uh, the Pope and where he fits in. So you were saying that uh, as the Bishop of Rome, he is a patriarch, is that correct? Patriarch of the West. May I backtrack one second? You may. I, I'm doing this twice now in two weeks. But we, have to, we do have our own, in a sense, our own language in the Orthodox Church. And the services that we celebrate are called the Divine Liturgy, not the Mass. The Mass Thank is what you. is referred to in the Roman Catholic Church in the West. Because the liturgy is a continuation of the Jewish liturgical services that Christ worshipped in. And thus, as the Church developed, it took that service and added what we call the uniquely Christian components of communion, the homily, of the scriptural readings to that service. 
So the word that we use for our divine services is liturgy. The word translates as a work of the people. So it's a priest with people serving the liturgy. Okay. Well, thank you. Now, back to your question. Yes. But that's okay. This is an educational experience for all of us. So. Indeed it is. Okay. The, your question, again, that you just asked. The, about the Pope the, uh, being a patriarch? He's a patriarch. Yes. In the early church, there were five patriarchs. Uh, Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria, Rome, and Constantinople. Because the early church was an urban church built around these. These are the major centers of the cities of the Roman Empire. So the church grew in those areas. And therefore, each city had its area that was assigned to it ecclesiastically. And Rome then had west, the west. And so thus, he's, he's um, the patriarch of the west, bishop of Rome. Now, when, when the pope celebrates the liturgy, for example, or a mass, as 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 the as the bishop of Rome, where does he go? Saint John Lateran, because that is the official church of the bishop of Rome in the city of Rome. So you're saying that if the other patriarchs have a question, you mentioned at the very end of the broadcast a, a, a particular theological question uh, that, that needed the patriarchs to to come together. What was that question? The question of the filioque, the addition of the and the son in the creed. In the, in, in the creed that we recite, which was written by uh, the Council of Nicaea, there is no filioque. No, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, period, not from the Father and the Son. That was added. And the Orthodox position is that this is basic theology. One person or one church does not add this. The church meeting as an ecumenical council, the entire church can change that, not one individual. Okay, so my question is, let's say that a a question came up in the Orthodox Church today. Would the the patriarchs then contact John Paul II and say, we need to meet, we need your help in your uh, capacity as the Bishop of Rome? Would that happen? Probably not. Because we're not in communion with each other, the West and the East. But if if the patriarch or any local bishop uh, face a problem, then he will contact the head bishop of the area, which we call him patriarch. Let's assume we're talking Antioch. Bishop of uh, Damascus, Bishop of Beirut has a problem. He will contact the patriarch. He will say, I have a problem. Let's call to a Holy Synod meeting. All the bishops get together and discuss the problem, and they come up with a, a resolution. If it, the problem is bigger than the local church, bigger than uh, the jurisdiction of the Antiochian church, then the patriarch of Antioch might contact the patriarch of Constantinople. Because he's of, ecumenical patriarch. Exactly. Right. He will contact all the patriarchs and say, we need to have a meeting to discuss this problem. Unfortunately, it uh, did not happen for a long time that uh, we have a, yeah. what we call it uh, ecumenical council, but we have regular uh, local councils. Okay, so is there an Orthodox Church in Rome? Par- a parish? A parish? Yes. yes. Oh, yes. We All right. Set, we have a metropolitan. The the current the new Archbishop of America, Archbishop Spiridon, was the Greek Orthodox Metropolitan of Italy, and his his um, offices his archdiocese was in the city of. Um, 
Venice. I'm sorry, that's, that's where the sea was in Venice, but he was responsible for all of Italy. There, I'm told there are about 25, 30 or, Greek Orthodox parishes in Italy. I don't know how many Antiochian or any other, but I don't know. We have that many parishes throughout all of Italy. So, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to understand the relationship between the Bishop of Rome and the, the Orthodox Church. So, are you saying that technically an Orthodox Church in in Rome, uh, if they had a problem, why wouldn't they go to the Bishop of Rome? Because we do not recognize his position because of the split. I thought that you did. I thought you said no. that even so, even no. though there's a split, he still... No, because they have instituted, and the West has instituted many changes that we do not accept. Not only the filioque, but uh, papal infallibility, we don't accept. The uh, immaculate conception, we do not accept this. The supremacy of the papacy, all these things that are uniquely Western, the Orthodox Church does not accept. Since 1054, we had no cooperation on any theological level between the two churches. Of course, we have a dialogue been going on for... uh, at least 15, 20 years. Yeah, all of that. But we haven't reached to the uh, point where we can celebrate liturgy together. We cannot uh, celebrate and, and partake the body and blood of Jesus Christ together. We still split. We're still not one church. Of course, uh, our approach to that dialogue, we say, let's go to the roots. Let's go back to the roots. Let's go back to the tradition of the church, the way it practiced it, and and then we can we can be one. Of course, there's a. It's going to take some time, I think, between the east and the west to be reunited. I, I realize it's it's a little bit unfair uh, not having a Catholic representative here to ask this question, but I'm right. going to do it anyway. <laughs> What is the Catholic response? I mean, you must have heard it a hundred times. What is the, ca- the Roman Catholic response right now to why uh, you are not in communion? I have not heard a Roman Catholic <laughs> response. Uh, for them, uh, uh, we refuse yeah. uh, to, to accept the primacy of the yeah. Pope. That's the biggie. Uh, which yeah. is, uh, yeah. they believe it was from the beginning because they believe the Pope of Rome is the successor of St. Peter who established the Church of Rome. And they believe St. Peter, which we disagree with that, was the head of the apostles. We believe all the apostles were equal. But at the First Council of Jerusalem in 49 AD, it was the Bishop Iacobus uh, uh, in Greek, but in English it comes out James, whom we called the Bishop uh, of, Jerusalem. of Jerusalem. And that was not Peter. So, without, But without getting into that, we do not accept the supremacy of Rome as an Orthodox Church. And therefore, we do not accept Roman methods in terms of dealing with various situations. Okay. What is the difference between the Nicene Creed and the other creeds? There's the Apostles' Creed and I don't know how many They're others. They're canonical, the others. The Nicene is the official creed of the church. Right. But but what is in it that makes it different? What what wording? Uh, well, it's not so much the wording as as the authorship. The others are have not been definitively proven as to who wrote them. Okay? And, mm-hmm. and, and that includes the Apostles. 
And so consequently, the Nicene Creed is the creed that was declared by the church to be the official creed of faith. Uh, and the other creeds, they were not according to the tradition yes. which the fathers of that first ecumenical council received. They said, okay, let's get together, let's talk. We have this, we have this. Oh, I've never heard such thing. So this is uh, The authenticity is in question. Right. Right. I guess we'd probably need to have the the creeds the lined up for you to yeah. pick out. This is this is off, and this was added, and all this. But right. nothing nothing comes to your mind offhand as to what's in the other creeds specifically that that would be different from Nicene. What we know that the Nicene Creed uh, emphasize on the divinity of Christ, on the humanity of Christ, mm-hmm. His sonship. Uh, uh, then it goes back to the Holy Spirit and how the relation between the Holy Spirit and the Son and the Father uh, and uh, one church, one Mm -hmm. baptism. uh, This is how we define our faith. Okay. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about what it's like to be active in uh, in the church. For instance, in the priesthood. Now, you... Is it true that priests must marry... It's not must. It's not but must. If if you choose to get married, you have to be married before you become a priest. So, uh, married man can become a priest, but married but uh, a priest cannot get married. Did okay. I make it clear? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you made that clear. Can you can you give us the uh, understanding on that? Uh, uh, why that is important? I think it's a matter of discipline. That that's. It, not an opportunity for it lessens the opportunity for scandal and that way you make your decision and then you become ordained I mean how would it look in our eyes as orthodox for one of us to be single and starting to date a parishioner that that's that's just not remember we're a church of propriety and and, and that's very important that, that we maintain that concept and that idea and therefore we cannot do anything as a priest to scandalize and, and if I go to the girl and break up with her and do, start dating somebody else, it, it just it just creates a scandal. So you get the scandals out of the way. I mean, you you get you get all of that that the courtship, all of the things that a, that a young man would do. How would it look as a pastor walking around with a collar now, uh, like a love sick sick puppy? You can't do that. Sure. And this is was the practice of the church from the beginning, from the first and the second yeah. and the third centuries yeah. that. Pastors well, and even married. the bishop certainly yeah. were married, most of them. Of course, monastic life, it was a uh, uh, totally different uh, vocation. But it was uh, a you, choice. It's a choice. You yeah. choose to become a monk and not necessarily you become a priest. So, uh, and, you, and the monastic life, it was, a, it was separate from becoming a clergy, from uh, uh, getting ordained to the holy orders, mm-hmm. bishop, priest, or deacon. Uh, till the 13th century, we had some uh, bishops who were married. Yeah. Uh, but since then, we choose to pick our bishops from uh, the monasteries, and they're all celibate. celibate. But among our priests, you you might see some single priests, celibate priests, which we have about 10% of our the, priests. The Russian are priest in Grand Rapids, Father Andrew, is a celibate priest, mm-hmm. which means he could then be a can- very well a candidate to become a bishop someday. And the patriarchs come from bishops? Yes. Right. Okay. The idea of um, 
of the monastery. So that is something that, of course, you are in agreement with the the Catholic Church, and uh, certainly not. In Ours agreement. are not organized the way the Catholic ones are. Oh, okay. That kind of an organizational structure. You don't have orders. No, no. You go to a monastery. Usually, the monastery it's under the local bishop, yeah. under the authority of the local bishop. So it's it. it, it, it it follow the jurisdictional right. So we don't have order. Franciscans and Dominicans. And yeah, we don't have that. No, we don't. And which we believe it wasn't like that from the beginning. Yeah. So we, yeah, we the, believe we're Saint still Anthony following. We're in the desert. Right. Right. And now Saint Anthony was third century. Uh, uh, is that correct? Fourth. Fourth. Fourth Excuse me. Yeah. So um, how far would you say monasticism goes goes back? Uh, I mean, does it go back to the first century? Do, you, do we have evidence of that? Do you know? Any of the, the the first Christians, or is no, it something? The, no, I, mainly we believe that monasticism started with Saint Anthony, yeah. who fled the city and went to the desert and lived a monastic life. Uh, of course, we believe that this kind of practice was before Anthony, so a few years before Saint Anthony the Great, we call him. But we believe, and the tradition says that. Monasticism started with with Saint Anthony the Great. Okay, uh, I want to jump in just real quickly to let everyone know you're listening to WGVU. This is Common Threads, and I'm Fred Stella talking with Father Nicholas Borsgal and Father Jim Bogdan, both members of the Orthodox Church, and we are discussing Orthodoxy today here on Common Threads. Tell us a little bit about what goes on in the weekly liturgy, and what what do you have in common with the Catholic Mass? What do you have in common, say, with a Protestant service? What and and where are the differences? Well, with the Roman Catholic Mass, probably somewhat more in common, uh, in the sense that it, uh, it's a sacrificial service in which we are commemorating what Christ said. He said, take, eat, this is my body, take, drink, this is my blood. He didn't say this This represents, this is symbolic. He said, take, this is. And so therefore we are reenacting and doing the commandment that was given to us. And this becomes a liturgical experience. And this is also true in the Roman Catholic Church. But there's a difference of how it's served and how it's approached. This is, But it does not uh, uh, make an issue of the fact that it's a, that, that one is valid, one is invalid. It's a different kind of approach to the, to the liturgical experience. The end is the same. Right. Um, I know that with the Catholics, their rule would be that if, uh, say, a Catholic was somewhere in Russia and there was no Catholic church around, that going Correct. to uh, an Orthodox church fulfills that obligation. Is the same true in reverse? No. No. Okay. Because of our relationship with the Catholic Church. It has not been a good relationship. And until that changes, and I think those changes have to come from Rome and work down to the parish level, until that occurs, uh, what you're saying is not going to happen. I think according to the Second uh, Vatican Council, prevent, forbid uh, Catholic faithful to... to, uh, partake or to take communion in any other churches. But if there is no other church available, they will allow it. Yeah, I mean, you're talking if, if, if there's not a Catholic yeah. church for a thousand miles away, All right. 
you do you can do that. But not with the Protestant Church is an entirely different emphasis on the service. Most Protestant churches are not liturgical. And so and the, the important thing in a Protestant church, as I understand it, is the preaching of the word. Well the preaching of the word is important to us too. But why are we gathered? We're gathered there to share in the body and blood of Christ. So that becomes the primary force in terms of liturgically, then the other is a part of it, because the sermon is definitely a part, but it is not the entire service. And the language used in the liturgies is? Are? No, the language of the, of the area. But the reason, I know the, there's something behind this question, too. Uh, we use Greek extensively, used Greek extensively, because most of our people came from that part of the world. But as they become Americanized, as we're in second, third, and fourth generation now, we have gone increasingly to English. The priest makes that choice on the basis of how he senses his congregation. So but, it's based on the parish. See, if you have yeah, a parish, right. most of the parishioners are Arabic or Greek or, or Serbian-speaking people, so priests use more, more that native language. Correct. But uh, most of our parishes all over United States, all over uh, North America, shifting toward 100 percent English. English. My parish, I, I use 97 percent English, mm-hmm. because I don't have that many yeah. people who can understand but what's Arabic. In- what's interesting, no matter where you go in an Orthodox church, because all of us use the same Byzantine chants. So the hymns that are going to be chanted, for example, this week in the hymn of St. Nicholas, because it's the feast day of St. Nicholas Sunday at, at Father Nicholas's church, will be the same hymn with the same tone, uh, the fourth tone, which will be chanted at Holy Trinity and any place else throughout the United, or throughout the world. And so we have that kind of unity. We don't have the, I don't have the, um, uh, the leeway of going out and having somebody compose a, a different hymn for St. Nicholas. I don't have that leeway. This is what is prescribed. This is what is historic. This is what is tradition. And that way we don't innovate the changes. So our challenge is how do we bring, is to bring orthodoxy to America while preserving the integrity of orthodoxy and, and not compromising Which it. Which uh, leads me to my next question. All of a sudden people of various ethnic heritages here in the United States are being attracted to orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Uh, what sort of growth do you see in, in your parishes? Are, are, uh, we have a lot of people coming to visit and expose themselves to orthodoxy because uh, it's, it seems to me that a lot of people, especially with the Protestant background, getting frustrated and with uh, I'm sorry to say that with some of the uh, churches who their faith and their practice is very shallow and they're searching to deeper and, and more meaningful uh, uh, faith and some of them they search on their own and, and unfortunately we do not evangelize enough in this country because we're focusing on our, on our people uh, more we do not evangelize enough but people searching for the truth and they're reading the scriptures and reading the, the early literature of, of the Christian which we call them holy fathers and they're saying oh let's we should practice Christianity that way and then all of a sudden they see a church still alive and still practicing the same 
thing for 2,000 years. For example, the liturgy which we celebrate every Sunday was composed by, by St. John Chrysostom in the 4th century. And, and of course, he did not come, come up with something new. He didn't come up with something new. He, he, he just put together what was practiced before. So we can say this liturgy which we, we celebrate today, it's from the 3rd century without any change because we kept the tradition, the faith of the apostles, which the, all the teaching which we received from the apostles. That was attracting a lot of people from uh, other uh, faiths. To get, add another dimension to that question, to add to what Father is saying, uh, we have an Orthodox language, if I may call it, a unique language in Orthodoxy. And it goes back to the linguistic question that you asked about what we use in our services. Many people criticize us, us in particular, because we utilize Greek. Now, we're not keeping Greek alive for, for nationalistic purposes, but the New Testament was written in Greek. And therefore, when you translate from Greek to English, or as it came out in the, in the Middle Ages, from Greek to Latin, to Elizabethan English, to the English that we speak, you've gone through four four changes, and something gets lost. And we're very conscious in the Orthodox Church of the precise meaning of words. That's very important. Just take one fast example in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. In, in Greek, the word, the key word here is epiusion. Well, epiusion, which many people say means daily. And we'll take that to mean, well, you know, something to eat every day. It doesn't mean that. There's a much, uh, it implies that there's something greater to come. There's something that we're anticipating. So give us a, a, a sample of that on a daily basis. It has a much broader meaning. So we're very conscious in our church and, and in the Antiochian church of precision <coughs> in terms of linguistics to preserve and maintain the Christianity as it was. And that is to the point that Father Nicholas was making in terms of, of why people are, are looking to orthodoxy, because we have not changed. If someone was interested in converting, would you strongly suggest that they learn how to read Greek? No, because we do have the good translations. But we explain some of the technical yeah. words which led to, yeah. to uh, misinterpretation. Mm-hmm. He did not know her till she had her firstborn son, for yeah. example. Yeah. It, it led to a meaning that uh, she had another children from uh, after she gave birth to Jesus. Of course, if you go to the Greek text, uh, it's very clear that it means until that means nothing after that. Any number of words. Did I, I probably I was vague on that? Perhaps. What would you say would be? Uh, what would you say would be the sense? Uh, Father Jim. The what? The, the sentence, uh, he did not know her until after the birth of, of until Jesus. Until she had yeah. her firstborn son. The implication is there are others. Right. And, and you and, say and we that... we say no. There's no evidence Because of that. the sentence says... No. And what this base is on, it's based on is the fact that uh, uh, the scriptures talk about uh, the brothers of Christ. Mm-hmm. Well, brother is using it in a different sense at that time. It could mean cousin. That's Cousins, what I, it right, could be, uh, when we greet each other, my brother in Christ, Father Nicholas. It has a different connotation, historically, liturgically. Mm-hmm. So all this plays a very significant role that we, we have to preserve our, our linguistic integrity. Or else then we become one of the uh, 25,000 storefront churches that exist in this country. And that's what we're, we, we do not do and will not do. 
you don't evangelize. That's something I wanted to mention. Uh, that, no. that that is not a, a part. We of... don't proselytize. That might be a better word. Perhaps. Okay, you don't proselytize. We do not go after. No, I mean that no. doesn't mean it's not in the orthodox uh, practice and, and and teaching. But unfortunately, we haven't been practicing that for for many many years for historical reasons. But uh, of course, the uh, the first. Uh, uh, Orthodox people came to this country where uh, uh, monks, Russian mm-hmm. monks, came yeah. to evangelize to the Native American about but, Orthodoxy. But also, traditionally, where do we go? We we go where the gospel hasn't gone. We'll go to not. We will not go to a Christian country ah. and bring people to Orthodox. We won't do that. Okay. We'll go where the gospel has not gone. So we have a growing church in China. We have a church in Japan. In Africa. In, in Africa, yes, Africa is growing. Uh, especially in, in the middle section of Africa, uh, in the Scandinavian, there's the Scandinavian church because of the Russian missionaries. Right. Well, let me ask you this then: How do you view other Christians, uh, non-Orthodox Christians? Uh, are, are they in in peril of their souls' everlasting happiness, or are they? Uh, are they almost the way there? How, how does that work? Is there any definition? We believe in the mercy of God. We, we don't play God. Yeah, we don't. Play you know, God. it's it's That's up right. to Him. It's up to Him. He knows. We know that the right path to salvation is through the church. Through the church, which observe the teaching of the apostles, and the apostles receive their teaching from from Jesus Christ. We believe the Orthodox Church preserved that that for for long time and therefore salvation is through the church that doesn't mean other people even not christian that might be saved but it's not up to us to decide we don't judge that's god's job i appreciate that gentlemen uh and unfortunately we are out of time with about a hundred more questions to ask but i want to thank so very much father nicholas borsgall thank you uh, and father jim bogdan uh, uh, Father Nicholas is from St. Nicholas's Church, and Father Jim is from Holy Trinity Greek Orthodox Church. And um, perhaps we'll have you again on uh, here Thank you. It's a pleasure being rights. here. Certainly. Thank you. Thank you. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. 458-0307. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. The participants on this program represent themselves and are not designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. To purchase a cassette copy of this program, call us at 771-6714. Send questions or comments, write us in care of Common Threads, WGVU Radio, 301 West Fulton, Grand Rapids, Michigan, 49504 or by email at s-t-e-l-t-h-o-m at juno, j-u-n-o, dot com. Thank you for listening, and join us next week. Losing.